Thank you. I'm Kendra Dillard. Um, I'm the moderator of our panel today. I'm curator and manager of the Governor's Mansion State Historic Park in Sacramento, California. It's one of California's state parks. My background is uh, in history. I have a BA in history and an MA in history and museum studies from the University of Minnesota. I've uh, had about a 25-year career, including three and a half years as a site manager at a farm museum, 11 years as the curator of historic sites collections for the Minnesota Historical Society. Then my husband moved uh, to a job in California, and I, I came with him. So I uh, have done a variety of things since then, spent a year at the Oakland Museum of California doing various projects, uh, led a, a project at the Hearst Museum of Anthropology uh, at UC Berkeley to move 10,000 Native American baskets and 6,000 textiles. And then for the last three years, I've uh, been in my current position at the Governor's Mansion in Sacramento. I'm here today um, representing the American Association for State and Local History's Historic House Museum Committee. Um, this committee has been working for about the past 10 years on issues related to historic houses. And... Um, let me ask first um, if there are members of the museum committee to stand, the Historic House Museum Committee. Thank you very much. AASLH has been at the forefront of dealing with sustainability uh, for quite a while. They've worked with the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the American Association of Museums uh, to bring this um, issue to the forefront and to even hold two conferences, the Kaikit one and two conferences uh, during the last few years to discuss whether or not we can sustain the number of historic house museums that we have, and if so, how we can do that. Uh, in 2006, the Historic House Committee uh, took up this issue and decided to um, publish a technical leaflet that we did just last November, number 244, How Sustainable is Your Historic House Museum? And I have a copy. Uh, if anyone wants to see it. Um, as you came in, and I'm not certain if this happened. Um, a brochure, was anyone here to do that? Okay, we'll have to get you one. Uh, no, Bethany was going to bring them, so. Okay, thank you, Julia. There were some sitting on a table outside the main conference room. Okay, thank you so much. I'm sorry about that. We'll have those for you in just a few minutes. Um, in addition to the technical leaflet, we produced a rack card that has, um, summarizes the list of 11 characteristics of historic house museums that are sustainable. And also on the back of it is a list of 
uh, indications that your historic house museum might be in peril. So those will be available for you. On the back side of the leaflet is the um, website address for AASLH, and the exact address where you can find the technical leaflet is available for free. So um, thanks to AASLH for providing that to the whole community for free. Unfortunately, this topic could not be more timely today, even more timely than when we published it just last November. Um, I come from California State Parks where um, things are not looking very good, unfortunately. Um, we're looking at closing maybe up to 50 uh, parks uh, out of 278 parks in California. Uh, all the numbers are still being crunched, but there's, uh, there's a lot of pain. And we're not the only ones. There are many um, states and local organizations out there who are feeling this pain as well. It's a, a very scary time, and we may look back on this as a watershed moment in the history of museums and historic house museums. Um, it's up to us how we deal with, with this crisis and whether or not we uh, come up with ways to sustain ourselves that uh, are viable, that produce healthy um, organizations, and that keep us going. Um, the panels, panelists that we have today have brought to you some success stories, uh, some ways that they've been able to incorporate the characteristics that we've listed and become models um, at succeeding by using these uh, some of the characteristics. When you get the characteristics, you'll see that um, we have set the bar very high, that we... Um, we know that we have to make more money. We know that we have to increase our endowments. We know that there is a very real financial pressure happening today. But we also know that we have to keep our standards high, maintain our commitment to our mission, and uh, maintain our commitment to um, the ethics and the... Um, all the standards that we stand for today. So that's the dilemma. How do we make more money but also maintain our mission? And our panelists today are going to talk more about that. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. We got together uh, earlier today and just chatted among ourselves, and some of the um, slogans or just catchphrases that we came up with, I, I took note of because I think this sort of encapsulates the whole spirit that we're going to have to come up with in order to be successful in the future. Um, one person said, we have to open up our minds. We have to reinterpret our missions and reinvent ourselves. The universal constant is change, and now flexibility is required. There is something we can do, and out of 
adversity comes opportunity. Our first speaker today is Jim Kern. Jim has been integral to Bruce Moore's growth since he became part of the National Trust for Historic Preservation's collection of historic sites in 1981. A former restaurateur, arts administrator, humanities teacher, and fund development director, Jim's diverse background led him to his current position as executive director. He was Bruce Moore's first caterer in 1981, and in 1996, he co-founded the site's signature summer event, the Classics at Bruce Moore Outdoor Theater. He was assistant director in 2002 and worked to expand public programming and community engagement with much success. He was selected from a national field of candidates in 2007 for his current position. In the aftermath of the 2008 Cedar Rapids flood, Jim and his staff led community-wide efforts to conserve, preserve, protect historic artifacts, collections, and buildings. Uh, repeatedly, Bruce Moore is recognized as a model historic site in community engagement and outreach. Jim? See, if you know how to cook and serve food, you can end up in the museum business. Uh, thank you, Kendra. It's truly an honor to be here today uh, to talk uh, about Bruce Moore. Um, this is the centerpiece of our, uh, our property, uh, an Italianate Victorian mansion, uh, or Queen Anne uh, mansion with some Italianate influences. But we're right in the middle of uh, 26 acres. Get out of that. In the middle of 26 acres, right in the middle of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, the mansion uh, is surrounded by what we see as seven distinct venues. Um, that uh, uh, provide us ample opportunities for uh, engaging the public in a variety of ways. Uh, Bruce Moore was not part of the Kikert Summit, uh, but from uh, what we have been told, Bruce Moore was uh, often mentioned during the Kikert Summit as a model for uh, engaging the community in unique ways that uh, are not at all typical of the Standard House Museum. And so today I want to talk a little bit about uh, what that is. From the very beginning, our history is a local story. It's a community story. There were three entrepreneurial families, all connected to important businesses, uh, who uh, made lots of money and actually were responsible for building their community. So we come by our, our mission to engage the community honestly uh, through the history of the families who lived there. Uh, all told, the three families probably have contributed close to three-quarters of a billion dollars uh, in growth in the Cedar Rapids community. Uh, and uh, the last family, the Hall family, Howard and Margaret Hall, had no children, but they did have a fondness for pets. And so you will notice in our logo, a lion's head. That's because Leo the lion lived at Bruce Moore for 13 years and is buried in the pet cemetery on the, on the property. Uh, and in fact, he is a direct descendant of Jackie, the MGM lion uh, that roars. But the Hall family started the family foundation. Uh, that has uh, just in, in their wealth 
uh, has contributed about a half a billion dollars in growth in the last 54 years uh, in the community. So our story is a local story. We have a couple of connections to the broader issues and national issues. Uh, the second family, the Douglas family, uh, Mr. Douglas's brother and business partner uh, and his wife, Mahela, were on the Titanic. Mahela survived. Uh, Walter did not. Uh, we have that story. And Mr. Hall uh, had a fondness for Hollywood and home movies, and so he was one of the very few allowed to bring his home movie camera on the set for Gone with the Wind. Uh, and so we have all of that footage as well. But what we do is serve a dual purpose as a house museum and a community cultural center. So we engage the public in the history, traditions, resources, and ongoing preservation of Bruce Moore for the benefit of the community. And you will notice in our vision statement to be a premier historic or National Trust historic site, it also says, for the benefit of the community. Uh, that takes us all the way back to the arrival of the Sinclair family uh, and their desire to benefit their community. So as we talk about the 11 characteristics of sustainable historic house museum, uh, I'm going to focus on about four or five of them as time permits uh, me up here and how Bruce Moore connects to them. First and foremost, uh, for us, is that... Uh, uh, we serve our audience and we are valued by our community. And we do that in a number of ways. Uh, uh, we, since we are more than the, the mansion and we are more than the basic interpretation of what happened in that place, uh, we have wonderful opportunities to engage the community in a variety of ways that, that uh, unfortunately many sites cannot we are well known for collaborating in the community. Last year, 45 different organizations partnered with Bruce Moore to produce programs, events, activities, uh, community-wide engagement that brought between 45 and 50,000 people to the site. Uh, Cedar Rapids is a community of about 130 to 140,000, so uh, that is uh, a significant number of people. We sit right in the middle of the city. We act like Central Park in Cedar Rapids. When the gates are open, the community is invited to stroll through free of charge. They can wander into the gardens. They can have a picnic under the tree next to the pond, next to uh, the duck pond. Uh, our exhibits are free. Our, our welcome center is free. Uh, we have a small fee for touring the mansion, a guided interpretation of the mansion. Um, Kendra made reference to the flood of 2008, and yesterday in a National Trust panel, uh, I talked about Bruce Moore's role in the community. Uh, when you think about the flood uh, last June 13, 2008, uh, every museum except Bruce Moore, every performing arts venue not owned by the schools, every performing arts and visual arts organization flooded. Uh, suddenly, Bruce Moore had a role that went well beyond its stated mission. Uh, we had, uh, certainly in 28 years of existence in the community, had built a reputation of leadership and collaboration and partnership and responsible stewardship. Uh, never in our wildest dreams did we think that we would be the sole standing uh, partner uh, in the community. 
suddenly we had an obligation that transcended our mission, uh, and that was to uh, rescue and to help out as best we could uh, our cultural partners around the community. You can see here a listing of uh, some of them, national museums and uh, regional museums, as well as the symphony, the theater, the opera, the ballet, the chorales, the organ society. It, the list just goes on and on and on of compromised organizations and their facilities in the flood. <clears throat> we did it because we had to because it was an opportunity to actually uh, put our our money where our mouth was, if you will. We had been calling ourselves the community's home for a long time, and in a statement I made to the uh, city council, I said, if we are going to call ourselves the community's home, then we are obligated to help the community as best we can in ways that extend far beyond our mission. Uh, a year later, uh, Brian Fagan, Mayor Pro Tem, sent a letter to Richard Moe, uh, the president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and uh, I was in, it completely caught off guard that, that we would uh, be recognized in this way by him, uh, and we certainly didn't go into it to get this sort of an accolade, but the opening paragraph really speaks of not only what we did in the aftermath of the flood, but the legacy of Bruce Moore throughout its existence. Bruce Moore has been an integral partner in the recovery from this disaster. While it is always difficult to showcase every efforts or recovery efforts, Bruce Moore has contributed so much to the pageantry of our recovery. But most importantly, it exemplifies the defiance of devastation and the spirit of community resilience and cooperation. In some of the darkest moments of our community's history, it provided a beacon which all could rally around. Uh, very proud of that statement. We didn't know what we were doing. We were flying by the seat of our pants. We happened to know some people. who We made lots of phone calls, and we started uh, making lists. And we started recording all of the things that we learned so that we could perhaps help down the road the next community that gets hit by a flood. Uh, but... Uh, we had the obligation uh, to step forward, and we had the good sense to just jump in. Uh, I'm glad that we did, uh, and uh, apparently our community is as well. Oops. Successful house museums are connected to groups and individuals outside the organization who are leaders and decision makers in their communities and in the professional field. As Iowa's only National Trust historic site, we take very seriously our obligation to extend the preservation ethic, not only in our community, but around the state. Uh, as such, Bruce Moore has always hosted the city's um, preservation awards. That's the photograph that you see on the left. We also have uh, the luxury of having uh, a presidential library uh, not far from us. Uh, and in fact, uh, the night before the Hoover Library was dedicated, former Presidents Hoover and Truman had dinner at Bruce Moore with Mr. and Mrs. Hall. Uh, the t photo on the top right uh, commemorates that night, 45 years later, uh, when the grandsons of the two presidents came back to Bruce Moore, and we all sat on the same sofa that the, grand or that the grandfathers had sat on and uh, uh, began or continued what had been a life long partnership with the Hoover Presidential Site. Now, I threw in the photograph on the bottom because uh, of what happened the week after the Tahitian Party fundraiser. 
Uh, the gentleman on the left, Brian Fagan, is Mayor Pro Tem. He wrote that letter uh, that I read from. Uh, the week after the party, he announced his candidacy for mayor. Uh, the gentleman on the right is on our board of trustees, Christian Fong, three days after the party announced his candidacy for governor. So uh, little did we know that we, uh, we create uh, uh, high-ranking politicians as well. Sustainable house museums are interpreted in innovative and creative ways that extend well beyond the traditional house tour. Because we are a house museum, of course, we have a variety of ways of interpreting, and you can see our menu of uh, opportunities uh, on the left-hand side. We didn't have enough screen room to list all of the workshops, so just a couple of them. But on the right side, we host outdoor theater, uh, the blues festival, cabaret in the courtyard, the symphony, the garden and art show, and so many other things. Our inspiration is taken from the families. They were so heavily invested in their community. The Douglas family was on the first board of trustees for the Cedar Rapids Symphony, the Cedar Rapids Ballet, the Cedar Rapids Opera, the Cedar Rapids Community Theater, the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, and many, many more. Uh, it is their legacy that keeps us going and partnering with all of those organizations. As a house museum, we uh, interpret in ways that perhaps are unconventional. There are no velvet rope tours. Uh, in fact, there are no velvet ropes. Uh, so every room is accessible in the mansion. And so much more in terms of our uh, additional ways of engaging the community. Uh, you see examples here of festivals, our outdoor theater. My favorite shot is that one of the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, and our cabaret in the courtyard. The photograph that you see on the lower right is the one that was on the cover of uh, the spring issue of Forum Journal a year ago uh, when Bruce Moore was cited as a model of engagement for the community. Uh, our inspiration comes from the activities of the families. You see Mr. and Mrs. Hall on the top left, uh, and below, Dear Sweetheart was taking their letters and their diary entries through the 1920s, 30s, and 40s uh, and converting it into a reader's theater uh, event. Uh, the Beaux-Arts Ball on the lower right-hand corner featured Grant Wood in the mansion, and our version of the Beaux-Arts Ball is called the Modern Salon. Uh, our strategic plan is very important. I wanted to show that to you. In five years, we were able to... Um, uh, absolutely accomplish what we had set out to do, and that was, number one, reduce the reliance on the endowment for uh, operations so that we could shift to capital projects. And the other was to bolster community engagement uh, and find additional revenue streams. So if you look on the lower uh, left, you will see that endowment income in 2000 was 69% of operations. On the lower right, eight years later, we had reduced it by 21%. You'll also notice on, in 2000, tours, events, and property use was 11%, and that doubled in 2008. In fact, tours went down, and other uses went up dramatically. Grants didn't show up in 2000, and it's 9% in 2008. Much of that has to do with that shift toward community engagement and very careful strategic planning. 
And finally, I'm just going to mention that uh, we have uh, the Lions logo everywhere, including on our children's postcard. We're probably the only site that has a mascot. Uh, and, and he is the most recognizable in the parades, at the farmer's market, and in so many ways. So I thank you, and uh, I'll be happy to answer questions when all of the presentations are finished. Our next speaker is Jerry Kaufman, the Executive Director of the Arboretum Association, say that five times fast, uh, and the Francis Cope House in Philadelphia. Uh, in writing his um, introduction, uh, Jerry said, this is my ninth career. After college and law school, I started practicing law with my father in Pittsburgh, I got involved in politics, ran the Democratic Challengers campaign for the Senate House, who lost, and two years later, in 1966, I was elected to the position for three terms. It was a fabulous time, anti-war, civil rights, women's rights, welfare rights, uh, and the beginning of the environmental movement. Most of my life since then has been involved with social justice issues legal services for the poor, urban lobbying for the city of Hartford, prison overcrowding, and several other careers. And just let me say, Jerry has a plane to catch, so if you see him rushing out a little early, it's not because he's offended. So here's Jerry. Thank you, Kendra. I really don't want to go on right now because that your presentation was so good. And so um, structured, and mine is sort of, which is who I am. Uh, so, a sustainable historic house museum serves its audience and is valued by its community. That's my theme. That's the theme of our panel. Uh, we're we are a 55-acre site located in a dense urban neighborhood in Philadelphia. And we are divided by a major street with 22 acres on one side and 33 acres on another. And uh, the, the, when I say the other side, which is not where our office is, is was traditionally farmland. <clears throat> and on my side of the street is a 33-acre uh, Victorian-designed landscape. It's really beautiful. Um, William Saunders had a hand in it who did Gettysburg Cemetery and the Capitol Grounds and some other well-known landscape architects. <clears throat> and, and so that's, that's kind of the physical setting. Oh, I'm supposed to press something here. What am I supposed to press? Escape. Escape. Okay. And then I'm, and I'm going to, all I have to do is go to here. There it is. So we are located in a dense urban neighborhood in Philadelphia, largely African-American. And um, 
when I well, let me tell you an incident. When I first got there, I've been there a little over nine years. Let me, I'll solve this for you. Go ahead and keep. Go ahead. I've been there a little over nine years, and um, no idea what we're doing. I have no technical skills whatsoever. <laughs> and when I first got there, I went to a community meeting. And it was an all, uh, it was a community organization, again, all African-American. And at the end of it, somebody raised their hand and said, Mr. Kaufman, if I walk up, and there were only two or three blocks from, from our arboretum, if I walk up the driveway, which winds up a hill, no one's going to stop me and say, you don't belong here. And I was really new. I was so taken aback. I thought, what is going on here? And that's how we were viewed as the, sort of the white folks' place on the hill because it was a hill and our, it's, it's a Victorian mansion where our office is and it sits on top of the hill. So I realized I had a lot of work to do. Um, <clears throat> and in a sense, that's why they hired me. I have no background in historic preservation. I have no background in arboretum work. When the announcement for this job came to the house and I looked at it and threw it on the table and my wife came home later that evening and said, what about you? And I said... Shelley, I don't know a difference between an oak and a maple. What are you talking about? It's an arboretum. <clears throat> Trees, remember what that name is? And, uh, but in, in 2002, I got there in 2000, we changed our mission. And I'm going to tell you, that was a defining moment. As it really grew out of, in some ways, that man saying, what am I doing? Am I allowed in there? And the mission now is um, to preserve the uh, historic, preserve and interpret the historic house and, and uh, landscape, thereby connecting an urban community to nature and history. That's really a key part of our mission now. And what I would urge any, any of you who are really in for the kind of financial difficulties and wondering how you're going to survive, I'd really begin to look at your mission is there a way to revive it, change it, so that you can... Uh, and I, I noticed that your mission in Iowa is very similar to that. I mean, it's connecting to an urban community. So we are the... Um, oh, well, let me talk to, tell you a little bit about... Um, we have this Victorian landscape. We have a big historic house, um, the Francis Cope House. The Cope family founded the Arboretum. They built 24 homes there. And, and the 24, they are now all private, and plus the Francis Cope House and the Arboretum Grounds uh, is on the National Register as the Aubrey Historic District. We have nothing to do with the privately owned homes, that, but there is an issue because there's often conflict between us and the private owners. Um, so, and, and on the cross Washington Lane, the Northwest Track we call it, that contains uh, community gardens for 60 residents. We have our local food co-op has a, uh, at least an acre. We have our Pennsylvania uh, Horticultural Society and our Penn State Extension have, have, le have uh, put greenhouses up there. We've leased space to them. We have an, uh, a series of children's gardens. Oh, okay. Um, Well, you can see we have an apprentice program, and back, there, back a little further, we have this uh, children's education program. So we have all kinds of stuff going on over there. Uh, 
the, the founding family, the Cope family, and it's, it's much like the three families you talked about, were really totally involved in their community. The, the grandfather of the Francis Cope, where our headquarters, uh, was a major, um, and, and, his, and his brothers, major abolitionists in Philadelphia, and, and major environmentalists. There's the first waterworks in America was done by uh, the, uh, Thomas Cope, when he was chair of the Water Committee of City Council. So there's all kind, I mean, lots of environmental stuff, lots of civil rights stuff. And, and it, was, it carried forward to the next several generations. We're really pursuing that mission now. That, I mean, that's, we view ourselves as, as a kind of head, the sustainability headquarters of Northwest Philadelphia. And the farming is part of it. We, uh, we have this environmental education program geared to state standards. We have 5,000 kids a year in, in that program. Uh, we have a summer nature program. Unbelievable, these kids in the I mean, these urban kids really don't. You say this is a carrot. It, it, we pulled it out of the ground. You mean carrots come from the ground? I mean, there's really the disconnect of urban kids from anything in nature is just astounding to me. And so we have children's gardens. We have this wonderful pizza garden that's done in, and everything you put on a pizza is growing in, 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 in slices. It's wonderful. Um, what else am I? Sustainability center. So I mentioned that. Um, we're site for community meetings, seniors, the senior center, local senior center, jazz receptions, board retreats from local community organization. So we are a very important partner for the community. There's the outreach, uh, part of the outreach. That's the, the Mother's Day tea party hat that kid's wearing. We're also very connected to the local community development corporation. We have a for-profit landscaping company. We train 18 to 24-year-olds in, in landscaping. They go to, many of them will go to work for the, the landscaping company. And we do street tree planting and greening all over uh, the Northwest, and, and including in Center City. I mean, it's not only there. And, and, but we're really going to ramp that up into, into what I call ecological landscaping. How do you do stormwater management? How do you plant rain gardens? How do you do rain barrels? There's all kinds of ways that we're going to be, I hope, on the forefront of that kind of landscaping in Philadelphia. And we're very partnered with the Philadelphia Water Department, uh, and that involves stormwater management. <clears throat> and that is trying to – I noticed today coming down here, the, past a fire department, they were – the firemen were squirting their, their big lot and putting all that dirt into the, into the curb, off the, into the sewer, and I want to say, stop, no, you shouldn't be doing that. And, and so we're, we're very uh, – we're a major demonstration site for stormwater management. We have a pond. We have wetlands uh, on this Washington Lane that separates us from, from the farmland across the street. The water department has put in an inlet. The water comes down the Washington Lane into the inlet. We clean it in a rain garden and then, and then pipe it back into our ponds and wetlands. They're going to put a second one in uh, on our side of – always call it our side – uh, of Washington Lane and another rain garden. And interestingly, that we're on the city's historic register, and the water department is actually going to spend about $350,000 redoing our pond and putting a rain garden in there. And they, they're going to have to do it with the approval of the city's historic commission. 
They've never done this before. They're very excited. The idea that they're going to do a, 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 an installation that has to be historically consistent with the original landscaping that has gone on at, at Aubrey. So th- those are some of the things. I don't know how much I haven't. Did, have you flashed anything? Okay. All right. Well, let me tell you some other stuff then. I'm very active in the community. I personally am very active. I go to all the business association meetings. I'm very, very connected to the local political establishment, to a couple of, our, of the state legislators, state house members, state senate, our local city council person. I have relationships with them. They're very, very important uh, as a way of protecting us. And I actually get money from one of the state le- – well, two of the state legislators, actually. Uh, we get state grants through them. One of some of the nature sites around Philadelphia, we're part of the Association of Conservation Executives. They actually have staff from local legislators on their board. Think about that. Um, may not be a bad idea. Uh, my my board of directors includes two city officials. They're not elected officials, but they they work for the city and they're fairly high up. So that's another piece of way to protect yourself. <clears throat> we're, we're as part of the uh, water department stormwater management. The water department started uh, about six years ago talking about forming a watershed partnership. We're on a creek that's all, we're on a creek called the Wingahawking Creek. The entire creek is encapsulated in the sewer, except a little bit that you can see at Aubrey. And uh, they formed a, a TTF partnership. We located it at Aubrey. So it's a separate 501c3. I chair that board. High-level water department people are on that board. Municipal people from suburban counties that are part of that watershed are on the board. I'm just giving you these things as a way of thinking about what are the other connections you can make. Everybody here can make those connections in some way, somehow. And that has really been a way for uh, us to, to survive and prosper. Uh, one minute. I have down. I've got some other notes here. SEPTA. SEPTA is oh, audience research. We did two years ago. We did audience research. We got a grant. We did um, focus groups, and we, mostly from our surrounding community. And now we're we're going to be doing implementation. We haven't really done much to, with it, but we now have a plan to implement the focus groups. Um, Earned income, I mentioned we have a for-profit landscaping company. I think we all ought to think about earned income, uh, all of us, and, and a way to do that. Uh, Bill Shore in uh, Save Our Strength, uh, I heard him speak recently about everybody has something to sell, every nonprofit. So I would sort of look at his book if you want to look at a good book. And um, – and, just on the, st- I'm going to. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going back and forth because I told you I wasn't as organized as the prior speaker. Um, the, the stormwater management then also uh, affects how we maintain our landscape. We let we we create meadows. We let grass grow high. We're going to create more more rain gardens. It's all about keeping the water on your land and not letting it run off, particularly in any urban area. It's just a major national problem right now. So that's my minute is up. Uh, I'm going to be leaving early because I have to get a limo to the plane to get back to Philadelphia. 
So any questions for me uh, when this is over should come a little. One quick question with that. Does, is the cult house interpreted as a historic house? No. No, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, we, we, no, it isn't. An, it, we have a little bit of a, if you walk in to the hall, there's a little history of the Cope family. But for the most part, we, we should. We wish we could. But we, we occupy the whole building. I mean, yeah. Bill Shore, save our strength. He's fabulous. Thank you, Jerry. Share he our strength. Sorry. Okay. Um, Jerry will be here for a part of the questions later, so if you think of one later, you can ask him. Our next speaker is John Holtzapple. He's the director of the James K. Polk Ancestral Home. John's been working in museums and historic sites since he was in ninth grade when he volunteered as a docent at the local historical society in York, Pennsylvania. Since then, he received his BA in history from the University of Delaware and an MA from the Cooperstown Graduate Program. After serving as an interpreter at several National Park Service historic sites, he became the director of the James K. Polk House in Columbia, Tennessee in 1984. John? The James K. Polk Home is the only surviving home of our 11th president other than the White House. Uh, it's a smaller museum than most of the institutions that are listed in the sustainability leaflet, but I am certainly aware that we do have more resources than a lot of the historic houses in this country. Our budget is usually under $250,000. We have two full-time staff members, the director and the curator of collections, about eight part-time workers, it's definitely one of those sites where everyone does a little of everything. And uh, being the director means that I wear a necktie when I take out the trash. So it's an all-hands-on-deck type site. Uh, certainly the board of directors and I felt very honored when ASLH's uh, Historic Houses Committee or Affinity Group suggested the Polk Home as a, a good example of proactive governance. But at the same time, the board and I felt a little embarrassed because we know most of the accomplishments that impressed ASLH weren't the results of inspired leadership, but of absolute necessity of doing what we had to do just to reach our goals. Uh, the organization was founded back in 1924 by a great-great-niece of First Lady Sarah Polk, who had inherited all these original belongings, including a lot of White House things, and she wanted to display them to the public. So she started a historical group to do it. This was in Nashville, Tennessee. For about five years, the group displayed these collections at different public buildings in Nashville, but didn't have a home. And in 1929, a house in Columbia, Tennessee, about 40 miles from Nashville, a house where James K. Polk had actually lived for about six years between his college graduation and marriage, went in the market for sale. And the group thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could actually display Polk belongings in a house where he lived? So they made an effort to, to raise money to buy the house, but were only to raise half, able to raise half the necessary amount. 
But that didn't stop them. They immediately started lobbying the state of Tennessee to try to get money to have the state match that amount, and the state did. So we have a, a site that was owned partly by the state or bought partly by the state and partly by a private nonprofit organization. They reached an agreement that the state would officially own and insure the building and handle any major maintenance projects and that the association would operate the site on a day-to-day basis, would handle routine maintenance, and would display the collections there. So right from the start, we have a collaboration, which is a word that appears often in the program today in that ASLH technical leaflet. Now, I'll confess from an administrative view, uh, administrative point of view, sometimes uh, a, his, a state-owned historic site managed by a private nonprofit organization can be a hassle. <laughs> There's a certain amount of red tape involved with that, but from a sustainability standpoint, it's been terrific. I mean, a number of years ago, the James K. Polk home needed a new roof. The state got the contractor. The state paid for that. That could have been a budget buster for, for the small historical society, but the state handled all that. On the other hand, we handle general operations. So when those occasions occur, and in Tennessee it seems to happen every few years, that the state legislature can't reach a budget agreement and they have to close down state office buildings and shut down state parks for a while and all the welcome centers, the Polk home is unaffected. We stay open. Another thing right from the beginning that happened out of necessity but has really helped us with sustainability, remember I mentioned James K. Pope lived in the house only for about six years between his college graduation and his marriage. The collections, however, were from throughout James K. Pope's lifetime, especially from his presidency. So though the house, James K. Pope lived in the house, he owned the collections, owned the artifacts, the two didn't really fit together for making it the traditional house museum that interprets the house at a, just a specific time in its history. So from the very beginning, we had an expanded interpretation, James K. Polk's whole life. As years have gone by, we've expanded that interpretation even more. Because after all, to understand James K. Polk, you really have to understand the time. You have to put him in a historical context. So part of our interpretation is American society and culture from 1795 to 1849, James K. Polk's lifespan. And it's helped us really attract an expanded audience, too. For example, uh, people who might not be interested in historic furnishings or in political history will nevertheless come to our programs on music in Polk's America or on uh, religious revivalism at that time, or social reform movements, or, or literature, or fashion. We've had a free public series, a program series called Pokes America. We've done it monthly for 11 years, uh, never repeated the same topic twice. And that's the way any historic house can expand its focus, but still stay tied to your interpretive, your main focus of interpretation. You're expanding your interpretation, but you're not diluting it. Um, now, back to 1929, when the organization started, the Polk Association right away did, made a few things to establish itself. From the very beginning, they switched. This group was in Nashville. They formed a satellite group in Columbia, Tennessee, because they felt it was so important to have a local group administering the site. It was almost handing off the baton that within a short time, it was the Columbia group that had taken over from the Nashville group. 
also right from the beginning, just really the basics. None of this is very original, but it's just the necessities, the textbook basics. They have statement of purpose, policies, buying laws. They establish an endowment fund right from the very beginning. So you can see the organization is working, has a vision of what they want it to be, and they're taking steps in that direction. So back in 1929, they were being proactive before proactive was even in the dictionary. Um, now, I will admit that over to a lot of these changes they were aiming for took time, took a lot of time. In fact, I think one of the reasons for the Pocomb's success over the years is the balance between change, sort of planned change, and continuity. For example, every year we check, we reevaluate all our organizational documents, all the policies, all the job descriptions. We review all of that every year, and we make changes. But in truth, the changes year by year don't seem that significant. We change a little bit here, we change a little bit there, adapt something to another circumstance. But as one who's been there 25 years, I can look back and say, wow, it's like a whole different organization. The poke home has transformed itself over the years and it's continuing to transform itself seemingly a little bit at a time. Another example of that, our board of directors, uh, the board members serve three-year terms. So every year, one-third of our board rotates off. So every year we're getting new ideas, we're getting fresh blood. But every year, two-thirds of the board stays on. So we have the experience and the continuity, too. I think maybe the best example of balancing, balancing change, organized change with continuity, has been our, our long-range planning or strategic planning process. We started in 1988, and, and I should mention, I mean, ever since the beginning of the organization, they've always been planning. But 1988 was the first time we had the formal structure of a, an outside facilitator and time frames for the plan and cost estimates for the plan and strategic steps of how we're going to go from here to there. Uh, right away, plans were approved in 1988, and of course, the board immediately started acting, and staff, acting on immediate goals. But something I'm really proud of my board of directors for is they also started immediately acting on long-range goals. For example, one of the biggest goals for us was site expansion. We had no space for changing exhibits, very little space for educational programming. Uh, I mentioned the state owned the, the house there. If something would happen, like a hole in the roof or HVAC system would break down, the Pocomb would have all these connections, but we didn't own a place to put it. So we wanted a building of our own uh, where we could have exhibits and programs. So right after the plan was made, we knew it was a long way down the road, but that very first year, we hired an architect to conduct a feasibility study to identify adjacent property that might become available for sale and might be usable. We approached all those property owners and asked for a right of first refusal if they ever would sell their property to come to us first. And in that very first year, they established a capital improvement fund to start raising money for something we knew wouldn't happen for a good ways down the road. But it meant three years ago when the owner of an old church building that was number one on our list for most desirable property, when they came to us offering to sell us that building, we were ready. We had the money to buy it, even the money to start the capital campaign for the, the renovation of it. And just uh, three months ago in May, we opened Polk Presidential Hall, our new exhibit facility. 
It was 20 year, 21 years after we put that on the long-range plan. So it, we had to be patient, but it happened, and the board had laid the groundwork to, to make it happen. Now, of course, I know any time you talk about sustainability, you have to talk about, about finances. And the POCOM is a balanced budget organization, but I'll confess, every year it is a huge struggle to do it. We do it, but every year it, it, it's a difficult process. So I certainly don't want to hold us up as a, a model of budgeting expertise. But I do want to say that the stress level, our financial stress level, has been alleviated considerably by uh, the fact that we have so many different sources of revenue. And it's sources that probably most all of us share here. For example, uh, just to go down, uh, unless we don't put all our eggs in one basket, our current revenue sources include admissions, shop sales, membership dues, memorials and contributions, endowment interest, special events, a summer history camp, grants, a city appropriation, and revenue from a couple publications that we sell wholesale as well as in our shop. Again, none of those things might be particularly innovative. Probably all of your sites do at least some, if not all of those. But something that's been key for us, none of those sources comprise more than 20% of our income. In fact, very seldom do they comprise more than 15%, which means one year we might not get a grant or our visitation might be down. We might have to do a little bit of belt tightening, but it's no financial crisis because of the distribution of the income. That said, if you look on the list of warning signs for museums in peril for ASLH, one of the things you'll see there is alerting that if your endowment contributes less than 15% of your income, that's a sign of, of peril. And for the poke home, sometimes it's been close, but it's never been that much. So right away when I saw this, I went to our board of directors and said, hey, wait a minute, and we're partly responsible. In recent years, we've been making a push for Polk Presidential Hall and our capital fund. We've been making push for money for uh, artifact conservation, and we've kind of been letting that slide with uh, the, the money for uh, the endowment, and that's something we are going to have to address. So even for, for new I mean, for institutions that seem to be thriving, and in difficult times, we're doing well. We had a, thanks to our new building, we've had a 22% increase in visitation this year. But all the time, there are things that are coming up that we just have to address. I mean, every year when we review our success at achieving our goals, we have a moment of excitement when we see all our accomplishments from the past year. But then we look at our must-do list and how long that is, and it's back to reality. I mean, we have uh, enough success that it keeps us from being discouraged, but enough unachieved goals to keep us from being complacent. Thank you, John. Second person named John is John Rodman, uh, Director of Museum Experience for the Preservation Society of Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, he oversees all visitor services, marketing, and public relations activities. He joined the society in 1999 as Director of Marketing and Communications, earned a bachelor's degree in journalism from Boston University and a master's degree in public administration from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. 
John's previous experience includes journalism, management, and government. He covered the White House, the U.S. Senate, and the Supreme Court, was vice president of news programming for a CBS radio station in Boston, a correspondent for CBS and NBC radio, was bureau chief for Standard News in Washington, D.C., a lecturer at Northwestern University. He was the recipient of the National Headliner Award for Best Investigation. John's most recent position before uh, coming to Newport was as Assistant Secretary of Environmental Affairs for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Please welcome John Rodman. Thank you very much, Kendra. And I'm going to try and see what I can do to get ourselves back to the other PowerPoints that are up here. And um, I'm Tail End Charlie. For those of you who know anything about the history of World War II, Tail End Charlie was the name the RAF gave to the guy flying the last airplane in line who was the most likely guy to be the first one shot down by the Germans. So I hope flying Tail End Charlie doesn't make me a target this afternoon. What I am going to try and do is take some extended transferable concepts out of the stories that you've heard from Jerry and uh, Jim and John uh, and, and try and generalize a little bit. Uh, before I do that, I want to bring some greetings to you. First of all, Trudy Cox, our CEO, would love to have been here but could not be. Um, um, she was at Kaikit, and you're right. Um, there were museums that weren't necessarily represented but highly admired for what they did at that meeting. Those of you who know Terry Dickinson, and he's been very active with ASLH, could also not be here for the same reason that so many other people couldn't be, and that is budget. But um, what we're going to try and do is, is talk a little bit, as I said, about some of the transferable concepts from what you've already heard. Um, I like that mascot idea. That's pretty cool. As far as the lion's concerned, I mean, that, he, he, that trumps Doris Duke. Doris Duke used to have a camel at Rough Point in Newport. I, I, anyway... Uh, I'm going to stay away from the animal thing for a few minutes. Jerry used my favorite phrase. I'm from the dreaded private sector, by the way. Um, I was in news and also news management, did a lot of, a lot of reporting, but also um, ran news businesses. And news businesses are a lot like museums in that the product depends on integrity. It, in, it depends on factuality. It depends on telling a good story but not selling out your values. And we all know what can happen when that happens. Um, but nevertheless, you have to find a way to pay the bills. So I pose the question. This is our diagnostic question. What's it worth to you? My points, I'm going to talk about three things. Persistence, creating value, and making a revenue connection. So if you don't, if you don't take anything else away, those are the three things we're going to talk about. So I'm going to start with... The man I like to quote most, Winston Spencer Churchill. That is the single most important human value aside from compassion in my estimation. The brightest people in the world can fail for lack of persistence. The richest people in the world can fail for lack of persistence. The strongest athletes in the world can fail for lack of persistence. Persistence is what delivers the goods on top of whatever other virtues you bring to the table. The other one, the other big issue is adversity. Um, and I, I suppose if you come to Indianapolis and you don't quote somebody in motorsports, you really kind of drop the ball. 
So I'm attributing this quote. A lot of people have said it, but I heard it first from Daryl Waltrip, who is a three-time NASCAR Winston Cup champion. If this were easy, everybody would be doing it. So I have to say that I, I work for a very large, very, very well-financed organization. I won't even talk about our numbers because they're embarrassing. And what I mean by that is that I'm humbled to be in the presence of this group because you all do more with less than we do. And so whatever lessons I have to share today are simply by watching people like you do the hard work. So this is the important question. And I want you to just, just think with me for a second. Why are we doing what we're doing? Because that why is what then pushes us to think about our assumptions, our preconceptions. And here's the question at the nub of it all. Because it raises the following question. You follow me? What would you not possibly consider doing to save your historic site? What does that say about you? Now, I'm not talking about breaking it up for kindling wood and selling it on the open market. But we need to understand that our own way of thinking about our problems can sometimes be the limiting factor. I mean, you really heard that from the three preceding panelists. That's the challenge. And we all think that what we're doing is mighty damned important. And we're right. But that doesn't mean that all of the value of it is just because what we're doing is important. And if you've been through the whole, you know, the, the museum courses, extrinsic value, intrinsic value, yada, yada, yada. But what about monetary value? How do you, how do you take this stuff and, and turn it into money to help pay to keep the stuff healthy and strong and protected? That's the big challenge. And a lot of it boils down to connecting the dots for people who have money to share the experience. Now, sometimes this is as straightforward as selling a ticket to somebody. The Preservation Society of Newport County has 11 properties. I will tell you one of our numbers. Right now, we're worried about roughly one-third of a billion dollars worth of waterfront real estate facing the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> with a little storm coming up the coast. You'd love to see our insurance bill. But our challenge, same as everybody else's challenge, how do you balance those forces? How do you sell tickets? Well, we have multiple institutions. We've just raised our individual prices for admissions every year for the last three years, but we haven't touched our package price. What that does is it strengthens the perceived value of the package. And that's where thinking about the value of what you have in ways that makes it more attractive for people to become more engaged is a good strategy. It's the application of good old private sector economic thinking. That for-profit category Jerry was talking about. Um, because we have to earn our way. And so, and now, as I said, it can be as simple as selling a ticket. It can be much more complex and it can have many corners to it. You all have experience to some degree or another dealing with grant makers who want to see someone in the community engage in some particular activity. 
and it, it can be those kind of connections that you were talking about, John, or, or Jimmy, you were talking about, um, Jerry's discussion of, of environmental action. Those are the kinds of things that, whether it's Pew or whoever the grant makers are, they want to see them done, they want to see them demonstrated. We have the opportunity. We just expanded the parking lot for our biggest mansion. Um, the Breakers gets a third of a million admissions a year. That parking lot is a monster of a stormwater runoff problem. We decided when we were going to repave it, we were turning it into a zero-discharge demonstration project. Permeable. That's it. And also underground detention, several different... I mean, it's, it, it was expensive. But we had the opportunity to make point to the city of Newport and to the communities in Rhode Island. So you're looking at these kinds of things, and you're saying, is there a funder who will help us? There's another whole community of people who will help you if you give them a chance, and that's the private sector. But one of the things we have to think about is finding a way to be affirmative. Now, fortunately, nobody here uses promotional language like that, right? You guys probably can't see it. It says, the people who lived and worked here are all dead now, but when they were alive, their lives were nothing but terrible struggle and adversity after which they died. And you have to say to yourself, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so there's, there's always this challenge because some of our stories are challenging stories. But there are ways to connect them with the human experience today. And that connection to the present moment is what creates what I call present value. Um, and, and some of that involves finding ways to translate problems facing the community. Thank you, Bruce Moore. Thank you. Into opportunities for creative change. Now, even though Kaikett said the tourism model is dead, I'm here to tell you it isn't necessarily. On some scale, we still want people to come see the sites. Um, I've been in charge of research for more than a decade at the Preservation Society. We know so much about our visitors. The key decision maker in every visit to our properties is a woman between 40 and 55 years old. We know her income bracket. We know her likes and dislikes because we've been interviewing her for years. We've been interviewing her husband, her mother-in-law, her children. And one of the things we love to ask is, who made the decision to come today? All the older women point to this woman in the middle. All the younger women point to this woman in the middle. All the men point to the woman in the middle. So while everybody's visit's important to us, this woman here, we want to make sure we understand what she wants. We, want to, we keep talking to her. We believe, and I'm, we, we get 750,000 paid admissions a year, we believe that getting to know the person who's already coming is the key to our success because we haven't yet exhausted all the people who look like her. I don't need to go find a gazillion new audiences until I've run through all of the women between 40 and 55. That didn't come out right. <laughs> anyway, but you see my point. Get to know the people who already like you and discover more of them, because there's lots more of them out there. And I, and I do want to emphasize, who, who, no. Jim, you were the one who talked about branding. Very, very briefly at the end, one of the critical points. I come out of CBS radio, where it used to be called the Tiffany Network, may not be anymore, but I'm here to tell you that, that, that what Bill Paley built when CBS was CBS and not owned by somebody else, I mean, it, the brand was indelible. 
Um, and that's because it never changed. Um, when I got to the Preservation Society, the new executive director, who had been my boss as Secretary of Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts when we were doing that together before, warned me that the board of directors wanted to change the name and do away with the logo. And I said, my God, over my dead body. Um, we had a brand that had been in use for 40 years. Newport Mansions. Now, it's a little déclassé, shall we say. I mean, it's not quite the Preservation Society of Newport County. But the brand recognition is global. I was in Australia last summer with my wife for our 35th wedding anniversary. They'd heard of Newport Mansions down there. I mean, I'm going through the Daintree Rainforest in northeast Australia with people from five other countries, and four of them had heard of the Newport Mansions. Change that brand, you'd have to put a bullet in your head. So that gives you an idea of some of the things that you need to think about when you're thinking about how you communicate with people. Now, there's one other group that I, I mentioned, and I'm going to touch on them briefly. It's the dreaded private sector. We've taken Jerry's model of engagement out into the business community. We did it very strategically. We brought in a professional to do it. I would suggest that small historic house museums might think about collaborating in a community to bring in a pro. Let me tell you who our corporate sponsors have been in the last 12 months. Bentley Motor Cars, AMG, Mercedes, Tiffany & Company, Breitling, Porsche, Food & Wine Magazine, Mish, New York, Brooks Brothers, Azimut Yachts, just to name a few, including two private banks whose names we can't use. They see the same connection that grant makers see. They will bring opportunities to the table for fundraising. And it is enduring brands who value legacy and craftsmanship, integrity, who will want to be associated with great historic sites. So my key points. If your historic site's in a bell jar, it's going to turn to dust. Intrinsic value is hard to market. So instead of trying to tell everybody about the attributes of your historic site, find a way to engage them with the benefits associated with your historic site. And again, I think about what you were talking about with Bruce Moore. Jerry, I think about what you're doing in Philadelphia. You can do it with the public sector. You can do it with grant makers. You can do it with the private sector. And Jerry's point about being connected to the business community, Kiwanis, Knights of Columbus, you name it, be engaged with the business community and look at your board because four of those big sponsors came because of a friend of a friend of a board member. And we call those people rainmakers. Find your rainmakers. Um, look for businesses that are expanding in your community. It will happen in the next few years. Be positioned. You heard him talk about that. Okay, I mean, John's absolutely right. Be positioned. That's how you do it. Thank you, folks. We appreciate your time. We'd be glad to take your questions.